Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to Week to Week, the political roundtable from the Commonwealth Club of California. Thanks for joining us for our first Week to Week of 2021. Yes, you made it through 2020. I'm John Zapur, your host for Week to Week and the Commonwealth Club's Vice President of Media and Editorial. Now, we hope you are staying safe and are well wherever you are. And we look forward to seeing you here again in person at the Commonwealth Club when it's safe. Until that happens, this is the latest in about 350 online programs the club has produced since the beginning of the pandemic. You can find all of our upcoming programs, as well as audio and video from our past events, as well as information about how you can help support our program production at commonwealthclub.org. If you're watching us live on YouTube, you can use the chat function to post questions for our panelists, and I'll work some of them into our discussion here today. Now, I think it's safe to say everyone has been eagerly anticipating the start of the new year. 2020 seems to have been universally loathed as years go. Uh, A new president, progress with vaccine distribution, and hopefully swift economic recovery are many of the things people are anticipating. But as his days in office are dwindling, there are reports that Donald Trump has wearied of the never-ending struggle of being president. The latest reports are that he's just phoning it in. On today's program, we're going to discuss the runoff election in Georgia, the president's phone conversation with Georgia's Secretary of State, the Biden transition, the effort to recall Governor Gavin Newsom, and more. So let's start by meeting our panelists today. First up is Melissa Kane. She's a journalist, a political analyst, and a lawyer. So welcome back. Welcome to 2021, Melissa. Thank you so much for having me, John. I really appreciate it. Also joining us is Carson Bruno. He's a senior director of training and programs at Coro Southern California. You can follow him on Twitter at Carson J.F. Bruno. Hello again, Carson. Hi, John. Thanks for having me back. Happy New Year to everyone. And also welcome back to Guy Marzarati. He's a reporter and producer for the California Politics and Government Desk at KQED. He's also on Twitter at Guy Marzarati. Good to see you again, Guy. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, on to our roundtable on the first topic. The president called somebody this past Saturday, and it became, well, certainly national news pretty quickly. Uh, he finally tracked down Brad Raffensperger, Georgia's Secretary of State, for a phone conversation about the presidential election results in that state. The audio of the call has been released, and in it, well, it sounds like the president is pressuring Raffensperger to somehow find enough votes so Trump can retroactively win that state. Um, Carson, let's start with you. I mean, the, the reports are that Trump had tried to call Raffensperger 18 times before he finally got to talk to him. Uh, was it worth it? Brings a new meaning to phoning it in, doesn't it, Uh, to to your earlier point, John? Um, It sounds like he's been doing a lot of phone calls to a lot of different states, a lot of different people in a lot of different states. Um, And uh, it it kind of creates this juxtaposition where, yes, he doesn't seem to really want to do the governing portion of the job, but he still wants the job for some reason. And um, it's... Quite honestly, it's not really going to go too far and, and, and not really going to change the result that we're going to see probably tomorrow in the in the House and the Senate and as well as then on January 20th. Uh, but it really is starting to put, you know, a, a lot of Republicans into a sticky situation um, with their allegiances either to the Constitution, uh, to their principles, uh, or to their president. And um, we're starting to really s- see just how much of a cult um, the, the Republican Party has become. Um, been a lot of conversations about it over the last four years, but the last two months have really uh, put put on the world stage. Melissa, dig into the call. I mean, what was there that has been raising uh, people's concerns? I think the quote that really is sort of the the pull quote or the headline that you really want to lead with is when he said, you know, I need you to find me uh, oh, nearly, I'm paraphrasing, nearly 12,000 votes. Um, it's like 11,000 something, something. Um, I need you to find me X number of votes. Uh, and that, I think, really um, struck people as the smoking gun, as it were, and in terms of what he was trying to do with this call. And particularly, like, if, you know, if he was going to be just saying, hey, count the votes better. I mean, he, there was always the argument you, you could make to say, I was just pressuring him to do his job and really investigate all the all the allegations. But when you say, I need X number of votes, I mean, that really does seem to cross a line into, um, you know, into, you know, potentially unlawful action on his part in trying to, you know, pressure this Secretary of State. And, What's almost odd is this is a pretty serious 
thing. And yet it it isn't even necessarily a headline through two, three news cycles. Uh, you know what I mean? Like that this is, I don't know if we've come to expect it or if it's just sort of something that's been sort of part of a long-standing course of action. But for whatever reason, I remember reading about it and hearing about it and thinking, wow, that's that's outrageous. And then um and then, you know, and then on to the next thing. Uh, and so the fact that it it hasn't sort of stopped, you know, the record hasn't skipped <laughs> with, with with this. And there may be some potential legal fallout, but um but we're very quickly now on to the results of uh, today's election in Georgia. I mean, that has kind of been the story for the past four years. There'll be some story, something that happens that people are like, I cannot believe this. You kind of sit down, you make the popcorn, you're ready to, to just kind of watch the, the analysis come in and, and the the implications uh, really kind of hit. And then, you know, five hours later, he's given the Medal of Honor to, you know, Kim Jong-il or something. Um, Remember Travelgate? Remember during Bill Clinton's administration? There was tra- had to do with uh, somebody working in the, the travel department of the White House who, uh, who got into some trouble, and that was the big thing. <laughs> it's just adorable when we look back. <laughs> Well, guy, what what can you tell us about the reactions that have have been coming out of both from the Democrats and then from uh, the president's own party in Congress? Well, I mean, certainly from uh, election officials within the state, I think they've done their best to kind of uh, hold on to the democratic norms that exist. Um, I would say, I think, from a voting rights perspective, voting rights advocates should probably be honestly more concerned when the election is over, when, you know, the cameras go away, when it's no longer election season. Remember, elections are controlled on the state and local level. And I think, you know, when you look at the map, Republicans control the state houses in about half the states in the country. I think what voting rights advocates should probably be most concerned about going forward, looking past the Georgia election, is really the possibility that these Republican state houses come back in 2021 and enact legislation that makes it harder for people to vote in future elections, kind of building upon these false claims that there's fraud, that there's malfeasance in our election system, kind of using that to build more of an oppressive and disenfranchising system going forward. As far as the reactions within the Republican Party, I think what you're really just seeing is a preview of of 2024, right? This has become really a a test of who's sitting at the president's bedside as he's going through kind of his final political decline uh, in the office, and really a test of is there such thing as a political will and who's going to get into it, right? Is there, you know, can, can the president's supporters be kind of inherited by whether it's Josh Hawley or Tom Cotton, uh, in, in a few years. And I think that's where you're really seeing the divide between Republican senators who are choosing to use tomorrow as a kind of exercise in siding with the president and siding with these false claims of voter fraud and others who are looking to put this election behind them. You know, actually, on that point, I'll add this. People are realizing the power of the Secretary of State. Now, it varies from state to state depending on, on how you're set up. But in certain states, the Secretary of State actually, when it comes to elections, of course, has a lot of power. And so usually the job goes to some nerd who is willing to do it. And frankly, most most people in most places couldn't name you their own Secretary of State. They don't really pay attention. It's a very part, you know, you go down, you just whatever, who's ever my party and, you know, is running. Um, and it's usually not a, a hotly contested kind of role. But I think going forward, in light of the very, very significant role that some secretaries of state have played in this election, you may see it become far more politicized and people start, you know, parties start running, um, not just whoever will do it, but but people put in there for, for potentially a, a very specific reason. And that's really, really concerning to, to take off of what Guy was saying. Uh, I think some people have made comments, and, and uh, I'll ask Carson if he wants to add to this, but uh, have commented on what do you think might have happened had Raffensperger not been the Secretary of State, but had it been you know one of these more extreme Trumpist uh, politicians we've seen? Um, Carson, any any thoughts on how this could have gone very differently? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's million different scenarios that could have been played out um, if. You know, just take, for example, if uh, Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin state uh, legislatures controlled by Republicans had um, passed a different law that would have required the the mail-in voting being counted first versus last um, and what that would have changed the the whole in the last two months to really be. Um, and in similar situations, you know, if there were different people sitting in different offices, if it was a, if it was a Democrat, um, if um, uh, uh, 
what's his uh, Barrows, I think, because it was a runoff between uh, the, the the sitting Secretary of State in Georgia and a Democrat, a former congressman, um, back in 2000 and um, with that 18, I think, um, that would have potentially put a Democrat in that seat. How would that have changed the calculus, uh, both with Republican governor of Georgia, the legislature in, in Georgia, as well as the dynamics um, kind of happening nationwide? So there's a lot of different, I think, scenarios that could have played out. Um, this definitely sets up a wearing precedent uh, for um, uh, for office holders across the across the country for future presidential elections, uh, for the consequences of the Secretary of State elections, as well as kind of who sits in county registrar's offices and a, a lot of different uh, capacities uh, up and down um, up and down these states and, and these races. Um, on the flip side, though, I think there's also been a fantastic civics lesson happening, you know, in front of our eyes. People are really, I think, for, for the very first time really seeing exactly what it means to run an election, all the way from kind of the, the county level up to then the state level, up to then how the cert- certification process happens, the canvassing process, then all the way to Congress and what happens there, all these different me- mechanisms that most people just took for granted. Um, even if we think back to 2000, there's so much focus, yeah, on Florida and the hanging chad, but not really other focus on kind of the other components of this of the election process. And so um, I think this kind of really showcased to a lot of people just what actually happens when you cast your ballots, uh, particularly in presidential elections. Well, John, and actually, I can think of another uh, hypothetical here. What if Democrats had had a much better election night, right? I think there is still an inherent incentive for Republicans to certify this election in some regard because they gain seats in the state legislature nationwide. They gain seats in the House nationwide. They could they have an easy path to hold on to the Senate tonight if they're able to in Georgia. Um, it's really just the top of the ticket they lost. You know, if Democrats had had a better night in November, there would be a lot less incentive really for any Republicans to go along with the nat- you know natural process of certifying this election. Well, and actually, not to go down a rabbit hole too deeply, but but it's become very fashionable to uh, hate the Electoral College and the, the system that we have. But I'll tell you this. Let's assume we had a popular vote system. That would basically put the election in the hands of the federal government. They would be responsible for collecting ballots and tallying them up. And do you really want a federal government you know, who's, you know, with this person and maybe depending on your political proclivities, whoever is your opposite um, at the top running their own reelection and appointing people to positions where they're, you know, they're going to be in charge of the election. The decentralized nature of this, the localized nature of this, uh, I think has actually been a real bulwark against what, uh, what, you know, could have been uh, a much more robust uh, opposition at the federal level. Uh, one of our viewers has asked, um, you know, what likely legal accountability is there for the president in something like this? Um, I, I mean, I can look to you, Melissa, as, as, as a lawyer. I mean, do you have any, any sense of both what could he face in terms of, of charges and B, is, is it likely anyone would? Um, what are your thoughts? Well, so interestingly, Georgia actually has a, a law essentially saying outright this thing, <laughs> this attempting to uh, to sway election results, attempting to change or uh, influence election results is unlawful. Um, now, whether they would, uh, it's not necessarily a criminal act. It's more something that the state attorney general would prosecute. Not really. You wouldn't send sheriffs to arrest Donald Trump for doing this. It's more of a fine that you would get. Um, and so it's unclear it would ever be enforced against him. But, um, but that is... As definitely a thing. And as a state law, it can't, it's not something he can even, there's a question of could he pardon himself? As a state law, it's not something he could pardon for himself. It, he can only do that for federal laws. And so um, regardless of what happens on the federal level, there's, there's definitely a potential state issue, whether they want to pursue that. I mean, it is still a very Republican-led state of Georgia, but, um, but it seems pretty clearly to violate uh, at least one Georgia statute. And I think this could uh, put to bed once and for all the idea we heard, namely from Susan Collins, the uh, senator from Maine, after President Trump went through the impeachment process, that just going through the process would teach him his lesson about interfering with elections. I think, if anything, it emboldened him going forward. And you're seeing behavior like this is so similar in nature to the very act that got him impeached in the first place. Arguably, and it has been argued, he did learn his lesson. He learned how much he can get away with. 
Um, well, let's move on to our next topic, though. It's related, and that is the Senate runoff election there in Georgia. Uh, I'm going to go to you first, uh, Melissa, as you're, you're uh, a native Georgian. Um, when uh, Raffensperger isn't busy dodging calls from the commander in chief, he is overseeing this, this large runoff election, excuse me, this rare runoff election to determine both who will hold the state's two U.S. Senate seats as well as possibly the uh, control of the U.S. Senate. Um, what, I mean, from what, what we hell? know, <laughs> I was trying to think of a family-friendly way to ask that. What in the world? But, I mean, it, so much has been made of Georgia either becoming purplish or, or eventually blue. But I mean, what what do you make of this this race and what it says about you know? I mean, meaning how it's been going and what it says about your home state. Well, it's so strange to to see my home state just be picked apart neighborhood by neighborhood. And I grew up in Cobb County, Georgia. And just, you know, to refresh people's recollection here, that was Newt Gingrich's district, right, when he was in Congress. So it's part of actually what spurred me to be interested in politics was watching my own congressman, who I was too young to vote for or against, uh, shut down the government. Uh, and so the idea that, that that Cobb County, for example, is now blue is so crazy. Um, the fact that we've that we we've gotten that close, um, and I think that there's demographic changes to be sure, but I think you know political changes uh, and ideological changes as well. Um, there is you know a a long-standing tradition of voting for Democrats. It just means whatever it just means, whatever Democrat means keeps changing. So I think, I think, um, I think they're taking it seriously. You know, early voting shows, um, we know it's 2.8 million early votes. And in addition to whatever the turnout is today. So it's clear that the people in Georgia are taking this seriously. Usually in a runoff, you don't get maybe you don't even get to 2 million votes in a usual Georgia runoff. So it shows that the people who are there know that this is important and, uh, and are doing their duty and doing their best to, to make their voices heard. And Guy, any thoughts on what that possibly means as far as what that large turnout could mean? Does one party have the advantage in that or the other? I mean, we can get into some polling lately that we're seeing, but um, I think people are, are a lot of questioning about polls lately. So what, what do you think we know about? Right. Well, I think the winner of a large turnout is uh, the news networks and all the news organizations who will have your eyeballs on Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, as the vote uh, counting process takes place. Remember, we didn't know the result in Georgia in the presidential election, I think for three or four days uh, after election day in November. So yeah, I mean, I think the polls as we're seeing for whatever they're worth are very cl uh, close. History in these kind of runoff elections does not trend uh, kindly towards Democrats. There's a very similar situation following the uh, election of President Obama when Democrats got very close uh, to uh, unseating Saxby Chambliss in November, only to lose in a landslide uh, in the runoff a month or two later. So history is definitely trending against them. That being said, I think you have to just tip your hat to the remarkable grassroots work that had been done by Democrats in Georgia, not just in this election, but really going back a decade. I was able to talk a couple of weeks ago to Nikema Williams, who just uh, took John Lewis's seat in Congress. Before that, she was the state party chair in Georgia. I mean, when she took uh, that office in 2013, she basically said they didn't have enough money to turn the lights on in the offices. And they, you know, the Shelby uh, Holder ruling had just come down from the Supreme Court. They had been stripped of a lot of voting rights protections uh, that they had enjoyed in Georgia. And they really had to build from the ground up. And so I think what you're seeing, you know, a decade later when they've been able to register more than a million people in that time span really reflects on the fact that these grassroots organizations, whether it's in Georgia, whether it's in Arizona, are really the ones that are pushing the Democratic Party forward. It's not the DNC coming in really every election cycle and mobilizing people. It's the work being done in between election cycles, the voter registration, the kind of grassroots work um, that I think has been a part of this amazing transformation in Georgia that we've seen. Carson, what do you make of this election so far, this runoff election? Yeah, you know, I think to the point on kind of the, the turnout numbers, I, you know, there's always kind of this conventional wisdom that Republicans don't do well in high turnout elections. Well, 
I think November really kind of shot that one in the foot because you did see a really extraordinarily high turnout election um, where, yes, the President Trump did lose, but the Republicans did fairly well um, amongst a lot of those other races. And and even Trump's uh, numbers went, went up really quite a bit. Like just even here in California, um, he netted quite a few, uh, quite a few new additional uh, of, of millions of votes. Um, and so I think it's hard to now kind of parse out what does kind of this early votes kind of what the, what do the, what do the lines mean? Um, what do uh, early voters versus day voters really kind of come to, come out uh, at looking like um, a lot of that conventional wisdom was kind of really turned on its head because of the pandemic. I think that had a big play in it, but also because of there's definitely a, a, a political uh, partisan shift occurring. Um, and that is going to start to muddy the waters in terms of kind of the prog- prognization of, of these election results. What I think that this does show, though, is that, you know, President or sorry, President elect uh, Biden's as um, we can start saying that now, uh, President elect Biden's uh, uh, campaign in uh, Georgia really proved the model. Um, that it is possible that all of this kind of work that had been happening in the state on the ground uh, re- was really starting to fire at all cylinders to really make something um, uh, really happen in terms of actual results. Um, the the questions, question mark still is, in a runoff, you have to reach 50% plus one. And uh, Joe Biden didn't reach 50% plus one in November. Um, and so it, it, it can, you know, can um, the two Democrat candidates actually uh, hit that 50% plus one. That's going to be a tough uh, you know, tough hill to climb for those two candidates and the Democratic Party in, in Georgia. Not an impossible one, but it's still going to be a tough one. Um, and you know what? It, I read, I, I was reading analysis today. You know, the Democrats, regardless of what happens, I think in Georgia, can walk away. I think being happy with the with the result because they've done everything right. Um, and if they still hit it up against a partisan uh, uh, Republican leaning tilt in the states, um, that does not mean that they were they they failed at doing what they wanted to do in the states. Um, yes, it means two few two fewer uh, Senate seats that that they'll vote for them, uh, but still means they've made a huge advancement um, in terms of making Georgia competitive. Um, that will have I think big ramifications for uh, both parties um, in future elections. Uh, so if. Just say Ossoff and Warnock both win. Again, we don't know at this point what's going to happen, but if they do, the Senate would be evenly split, 50-50 on the Democrat side. That includes two independents who caucus with the Democrats. And, of course, that means Vice President Kamala Harris can't travel because she has to stick around to cast uh, a whole bunch of deciding votes. Um, I'm just thinking that that kind of razor-thin victory not only makes lots of close votes into you know nail-biters, but uh, it also makes every Democratic senator a king or a queen, able to threaten to, to uh, vote against the caucus in order to get their way. Melissa, your thoughts on, on this. Is this going to be a difficult Senate for a President Biden to deal with, no matter which way these Georgia... Well, to some degree, you're right. And California actually shows us this. Um, y'all remember how we got the top two primary? It was because... Abel Maldonado was the kingmaker during the time when we needed two-thirds votes for a budget. And so when you need that two-thirds vote for a budget, everybody gets to be a kingmaker. Abel Maldonado said, I'll vote for your budget, but you're going to put a top two primary on the ballot. And then voters endorsed it. So that's just an example of, of what happens when you've got the one vote, when you just need the one vote, and whoever is willing to give you that can make serious demands. So it's, I mean, it's already going to be sort of unwieldy. We have, a, you know, the Democrats are splintered. But in Georgia, actually, I mean, it's it's going to be really fascinating to your point about the polling. And I think Carson also mentioned this. It's really impossible to predict because it's been impossible to poll between the holidays and people being out of town or sort of not being around and, and people not wanting to talk about it. And, and Republicans in particular being split because you've got the president attacking the Republican Governor Kemp. I mean, he just did a rally and said he would he's going to campaign against Kemp's reelection, who's a Republican, and he's going after the Secretary of State, who's also a Republican. And and then we've got Lynn Wood telling people to stay home because the election is rigged. I mean, you've got even you if you look at as a pollster and you say, Oh, this these are the responses from you know, the, these registered Republicans who vote in every election, what do you even do with that? How do you even parse it out and figure out 
what parts they represent in terms of staying home or not. Um, and then you have Democrats who maybe are moderate and don't want Democrats to have a majority in the Senate and say, I'm pro Joe Biden, but I think, you know, we can't have Democrats in control of all three branches. And so they may be voting for Republicans to just to, or maybe just one Republican, just to keep it from, um, from being too far, um, you know, a field into Democrat territory, even though they generally supported Biden over Trump. So it's just, there are, you know, it, you might as well have 20 candidates on the ballot as complicated as it is to try to figure out what's going to happen here. And there've been some polls, but it's still most watchers um, and people who've been observing Georgia politics for a long time. will tell you it's, it's basically um, a coin toss. Um, And of course, coming up in two years, we could see a rematch of uh, Brian Kemp with Stacey Abrams and Stacey Abrams. They they may, they may still be counting these ballots in two years. Uh, you know, <laughs> if it's super close, like we think it's going to be, it's, you know, like they're still counting the presidential vote balance. So <laughs> that was November. So we may not actually know for quite a while. Um, there may be tons of, you know, other legal challenges to come based on the Senate election as well. Very good. Well, I want to talk about something that uh, is involving our own governor here in California, and that is uh, an effort to recall him. Um, I I suspect this movement has been either unknown or treated as a joke for a long time, but with the governor's popularity taking a hit during the pandemic and the economic downturn, the movement has received more attention these days. And Guy, I know you've been doing some reporting on this. So like I said, I think most people were even unaware that this recall effort existed. You've been reporting on it. What do we know about this effort and what is the latest on it? Well, right. And I think people had every reason to think that this was kind of a joke because Ever since Newsom took office in 2019, there have been a series of, uh, you know, slow starting and uh, quickly ending recall campaigns against him that had a difficult time getting off the ground. Even this campaign initially was really slow in collecting signatures. And then all of a sudden it took off in November after uh, news came out about Newsom's dinner at the French Laundry restaurant in the middle of all these coronavirus guidelines for dining, combine that with a court extension that has now given this campaign basically until March they have now to get the signatures they need to get on the ballot. Uh, It's kind of taken off and it's definitely gotten the attention of the governor's office and the governor's political staff. It's unclear if it's going to have enough money and enough political backing to get over the finish line. It did get a big contribution uh, last week, $500,000 from a kind of... uh, Shady, shall we say, uh, Orange County firm called Proverbs 3-9. Not much is known about it. I was able to uh, track down a representative last night, got him on the phone. It was not the voice of King Solomon I found, uh, spoiler alert. But basically, this is a group in Orange County that has been, uh, you know, really against the governor's restrictions, particularly when it comes to religious gatherings. Um, And I think this was, you know, the campaign itself is largely trying to draw upon a lot of frustration around, you know, the guidelines in California and take advantage of the fact that, look, 2020, the coronavirus pandemic is not a good time to be an incumbent, no matter who you are. And I think there's only so much you can blame the governor for when it comes to the spread of the virus here in California. That being said, it was really these unforced errors on the part of Newsom that I think got the ball rolling uh, for this potential recall campaign. And now it's really up to him, um, up to Newsom to really pull off in the next few months, both potential school reopenings, um, the vaccination rollout to the extent the state can control that. Now I think there's a lot more pressure on him to pull off these kind of coronavirus related issues um, because the pressure is definitely mounting. Guy mentioned this this group is called Proverbs 3.9. Just for the record, Proverbs 3.9 reads, according to the version I looked up on Google, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. So... That's what we know about that group. Uh, Sounds Carson, like a bumper sticker. Yes. Well, it, it fit. That's, the Bible was made in short bumper sticker type things. And you just kind of, okay, I'm going to go to hell for that. Um, Carson, are these forced errors by Gavin Newsom that have uh, really gotten some, some uh, opposition to him? The French Laundry Dinner, for example. Or, um, you know, is he just kind of the, the governor at the time when... Californians aren't following the rules anyway when, with all their beach parties and, and uh, beer bashes. Well, yeah, 
for, for those who follow the Commonwealth Club have long known that I can be uh, critical of uh, Governor Newsom. Uh, <laughs> of course, the member, members of the Commonwealth Club know, know Newsom much better than I do, just given his tenure uh, in San Francisco and such. But, um, you know, <laughs> in a way, I don't think that they're necessarily unforced. I think they just kind of, he kind of want, wanted to do what he wanted to do. I mean, London Breed also uh, took, a, took a trip up to Napa to uh, French Laundry. It seems to be the hop in place uh, during uh, the COVID pandemic uh, lockdown. Um, and, you know, I think that's going to taint a lot of then what, um, that what they're trying to say and what they're trying to do in terms of compliance with actually trying to address this pandemic. Um, you know, I don't think it, it, the, the French laundry dinner itself is not necessarily true problematic. I mean, we've come to acknowledge that politicians are going to be doing these sort of things. The problematic thing is, is that he, he's been kind of talking out one side about the pandemic and then kind of really kind of doing something else. And particularly at a point in time where people are just starting to get fed up with um, all the rules and regulations and and the lack of clarity. Um, you know, I, I live now in Los Angeles County. A big part of the, the lot of what, a lot of people what you hear complaining here and people who are very liberal complaining uh, as well. It's not a partisan necessarily thing, an ideological thing. They're complaining about this. Don't understand the rules. They things are changing constantly and and it's opaque. What can you do? What can't you do? Why can I do this and not that? When they're functionally the same thing. Um, it just all these sort of it's a very muddled kind of communication PR outreach, which then really does depress actual compliance with it. So I think where Governor Newsom is really starting to struggle is um, winning back that trust. He lost that trust. How do I win back that trust so that I can kind of get this thing through? The vaccination rollout, I think, is an excellent way for him to do so. But already we're seeing stumbling on that. You know, just 24%, I think, today, uh, most recent numbers, 24% of the received doses of the vaccine have actually been deployed and, and given um, in the state of California. That's a really sad number um, for a state our size where the, the pandemic is really hitting um, people really hardly uh, or hard. So I think there are opportunities for him to kind of get back on his feet, but he has to regain that trust. Um, and it, that's, that's a tough thing to do as a public official once you've lost it. Um, now, on the flip side, I think the, the recall campaign runs into a problem on their own PR side because, you know, we're, headed, we're now in 2021. We're due for another governor's election next year. Um, what's the rationale to kick out the governor basically, you know, maybe 10 to 12 months ahead of time from when we'll actually be, you know, electing a new governor to begin with. Um, that's a tough hill to climb for them, not, not just kind of the signatures and, and the campaigning and the, and the fundraising side too. Well, these things take time. In fact, I'm going to just announce a recall campaign for whoever is the governor in two years. doesn't matter just because these have to raise money and do planning ahead. Melissa, uh, they need to, to get 1.5 million signatures for this to get on the, this recall on the ballot. Uh, last I heard, they had more than 900,000. Um, what's your, your take on, on the level of threat that this recall effort actually uh, opposes to either Gavin Newsom actually losing office or just being so diverted from it, he's not focusing on, his, on doing his regular job? I have to agree with Carson that there has been an absolute breach of trust. I think he is like the shine has worn off of this one. And even as nonpartisan as I try to be, what a punk for what he did going to the French laundry. What a total punk. And then to try to come out and get credit for, oh, well, I'm just, I'm going to, cause y'all, I'm a good guy. I'm going to disclose that I did this thing. Meanwhile, he knew that there were pictures of him there. And so, but he was trying to get credit for like coming forth with it, um, even when he was presented with the evidence. It was so disgusting. And even as someone who has followed his career, I've, you know, he's a decent person. I've chatted with him many times. Um, it's, it was so, it totally broke my heart when he did that. And it was so unforced and so irresponsible and so selfish and narcissistic. And I think that's what people have suspected of him. And it, it looks like he's, you know, the person that, you know, some people were nervous that he would be. Now, having said that, he's going to be fine unless this recall group comes up with a better alternative. 
right? Because right now it's like Newsom or what or who, you know? And remember the last recall election, it was like Gary Coleman, you know? <laughs> it was this list of people challenging Gray Davis was very long and very odd. And so uh, we don't really, we didn't have then necessarily, you know, until until he jumped in later, the Schwarzenegger. But it was, it's going to take an actual alternative being, being presented. I don't think you're, he's going to, he has any reason to be nervous about a recall in the absence of an actual alternative being presented. Um, if that were to happen, if somebody were to step forward, who's, you know, uh, if it's, what is it, The Rock, you know, he's, <laughs> I know he's talked about ready for office before, you know, some other, uh, some other well-known name that is appealing, then I think, you know, the governor has, has a reason to be nervous. But for now, while um, it's sort of, you know, we're just mad at him and I'm personally mad at him, <laughs> um, but I don't think the recall has, is going to have much uh, traction. Even if it gets the signatures, it's not going to have as much traction unless there is an actual person who's like, I'll be on that recall ballot and you can vote for me. There's, I think it's just... Go ahead, guys. I'm just going to say another example of all that's changed in the last 365 days. I mean, if you remember where we were this time last year, there was just starting to be murmurings that San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner would potentially run against Newsom in a couple years, focusing on the issue of homelessness. Newsom comes back a month later, dedicates his entire state of the state address just talking about homelessness. If you had told Newsom on that day, Governor, in a year from now, you would have signed historic investments on homelessness. You would have had a federal program that built six, you know, six thousand new uh, rooms for homeless folks. Uh, homelessness would be at the, you know, pretty far down the list of Californians' issues right now. He probably would have said, "I'll meet you at the French Laundry. Let's celebrate." It just, you know, it shows everything that's changed over the uh, the past year. And you know, I would maybe disagree a, li a little bit with Melissa. I think Kevin Faulkner is a decent candidate as far as Republicans go. I agree that it's not really going to be a huge political concern for Newsom. Kevin Faulkner is not the Terminator, um, but I do think it's someone who has already started the groundwork, right? He's already laying the groundwork to run in 2022. So he is someone who could step up if there's a possible recall on the ballot in 2021. I will just say one thing I'm watching, Democrats do have kind of a break glass uh, alternative available if they need it. If it looks like Newsom's popularity is really waning as we get later into this year, there is a possibility if Democrats in the legislature move the primary election back to March. Remember, it was in March this past year, but was moved back to June. Right now, it's scheduled for June 2022. If they're able to move that back to March, there's the ability to consolidate that primary election with a recall. So you get kind of a regular primary turnout. You wouldn't have to worry about a scenario where the election is held, you know, a week before Christmas and nobody turns out but the people who really want Newsom out of office. So I think there's a long way to go before that, but that's kind of the, the last break glass alternative for Democrats. But Well, actually, I just want to say Faulkner is a perfectly good candidate. I just mean he would need to step up and say, OK, I'll be the guy if there's a recall. Right. I mean, he just I don't think he's he said, you know, he may be running against uh, Newsom later in a, in a regular election but in terms of being like the face of the recall right. um i don't think he's he's been there yet but i think if he did he would you know he could be formidable i'm gonna, well, I'm gonna let hairs a little bit and uh kind of go in between guy and melissa here because you know i think uh uh kevin falconer had a great chance of really kind of being a a list kind of a plus list re, uh, republican candidate for the republican party in california until um, December of 2020, when he let it slip that he, yes, he did in fact vote for President Trump uh, because he'd be better on the economy. Um, and he hung the Trump noose around his neck in terms of California politics, uh, which you know, any smart Democrat running against him, whether it's again in a recall situation or in a general election in 22, um, what, what, Trump does not play well statewide here. Yes, in pockets of the state, um, but a Falconer candidacy would have won those areas anyway. Um, it's not. He's, it's hard to win California if you are losing Los Angeles uh, by double-digit margins, and um, uh, Trump does not play well uh, in in the county of Los Angeles. So uh, he he kind of shot himself in the foot there. 
Well, and and I think uh, Jerry Brown and his fourth or fifth comeback uh, campaign would use that as a weapon, certainly. I mean, he's too smart of a campaign candidate to let that go. Well, let's stick with with other things that uh, Governor Newsom has done. And that is, of course, he had to pick the or got to pick the replacement for Senator Kamala Harris in the U.S. Senate. Um, there was, of course, a lot of heated debates about who that should be. There was an organized effort to have him uh, select another African-American female because there now is no African-American female in the U.S. Senate once uh, Harris is gone from it, arguably casting the, the, the deciding vote, but that's, that's a separate issue. Nonetheless, he went with California Secretary of State Alex Padilla. Um, now, on our last week-to-week -week back in November, I asked USC's Dan Schnur who he thought Newsom would pick to replace Harris. And Schnur, Schnett, excuse me, Schnur said uh, he was pretty sure Newsom would pick someone who held a statewide constitutional office, thereby ensuring that Newsom would pick the U.S. senator plus that person's replacement in the constitutional office. Well, that's what he did. So I want to talk a bit about both what do you think of the selection of Alex Padilla? And what do you think of the selection of Assembly Member Shirley, Dr. Shirley Weber, to succeed Padilla as a Secretary of State? Um, Guy, let's go with you first. Sure. Well, I think you know Padilla was certainly the odds-on favorite, uh, given his experience in multiple levels of government, and honestly, the uh, work he did in the election in 2020, carrying out just a tremendous uh, amount of transformation within the way that Californians cast their ballot, all in the midst of a pandemic. Um, was really a signature accomplishment. If things went wrong, it would have been kind of a signature failure. I think a lot was riding for Padilla on how well the, the November 3rd election went in the state. But ultimately, you know, mailing every voter a ballot, shifting a multi-year shift away from traditional polling places to these larger vote centers and expansion of early voting, all that really came uh, together and resulted in historic levels of turnout uh, that we saw in November. So I think after that, he really did become the logical pick. Shirley Weber, um, you know, I thought was maybe not a household name in California politics, but she certainly um, has tremendous amounts of respect within the legislature. She's done a lot of work on public safety, on policing reform, and even honestly on voting. I was able to talk to her last week kind of about her agenda for the Secretary of State's office, and she She's really focused on voting rights for, you know, in the past, Californians in county jails. She was a leader to try to expand the right to vote for Californians on parole. Um, and I think she'll probably look to, to uh, extend a lot of the reforms that Padilla pushed. She's already signaled that she wants to keep sending every voter ballot, um, continue with the kind of vote centers, early voting. So I think we'll see a continuation of a lot of those uh, reforms. And then Newsom still has one more pick left potentially, right? If Javier Becerra is confirmed as HHS secretary in Washington, he then gets to fill the attorney general spot. So a lot of uh, political favors to be doled out by a governor who honestly needs them right now. <laughs> Carson, what are your thoughts on these two picks? Yeah, well, from a, a, a purely kind of professional standpoint, um, Secretary Padilla uh, is uh, a, an alumnus of Cora Southern California's Fellows in Public Affairs Program. Um, who also, Diane Feinstein, is also a member of Cora Southern California's uh, Fellows in Public Affairs program. Um, and so we're extremely happy from a professional standpoint uh, to have two um, or both of our uh, California senators being alum uh, alumni in, uh, of our programs. Um, but from a kind of a politics and policy and, and um, perspective, um, you know, I think Governor Newsom did, uh, you know, a, a really smart thing from, from a lot of different angles. I mean, for, just from uh, rewarding people who have been loyal to him. Um, uh, Alex Padilla has been a, a good friend to Governor Newsom, dating back all the way to his very first gubernatorial run um, back in 2010, although that was a short one. Um, and through kind of the, 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 you know, the years since, um, from, a, from a background story perspective, uh, a, you know, a fantastic story. I mean, Padilla's, Padilla's story is um, a, you know, a, a true kind of California uh, dream type story, you know, but coming from um, you know, immigrant parents to, to working hard and, and uh, you know, working up the ladder and eventually becoming Secretary of State uh, of, of the state, um, the first, you know, Latino male um, senator from California, where Latinos represent about 40% of our population. So a lot of, like, you know, great story there as well, but then also on politics and, and policy, 
uh, two, I think, two important wins for um, what what Newsom cares about, what the Democrats nationally care about, uh, what Democrats here in California care about, um, as well as what, obviously what Padilla uh, cares about as well. So um, I think you know a, a smart choice there on a lot of different levels. And then Assemblywoman um, uh, Shirley Weber again, you know, I, I think a very smart choice. I don't think one that many people kind of had. Um, on their top five uh, in Sacramento necessarily, but again, her backstory, you know, is just you know, really, you know, really heartening. You know, they kind of hear where she's come from, what she's been able to accomplish, and all ultimately what she'll be able to accomplish in this role. Um, she's had you know, a great career um, in San Diego in uh, in the legislature. Someone who really uh, commands respect from both sides of the aisle. She's done a lot of work on education um, that has really brought her a lot of support and, and credit from uh, even conservatives and Republicans uh, throughout the state. And so I think she'll she'll be a really um, a really powerful and really great uh, Secretary of State. Melissa, we know you think he's a punk, but how do you think Governor Newsom did on these two selections? Uh, I, you know, I think I, I agree with the other two panelists. I mean, this was it was a good move. It is somebody who's aligned with him politically. I mean, if you're looking to find someone who checks the boxes, I mean, he's certainly someone who is you know a historic figure in the sense that he is this he's Latino and and the state has. Uh, such a large Latino population. It's it's almost odd when you read that we haven't had a, a Latino senator before. I thought, oh, I, that's odd. <laughs> and so, uh, so uh, okay, well, it sounds about like it's time. Uh, so, you know, he picked people who were aligned with him. But, and actually to, to, to tee off on something that Carson said, um, you did mention Dianne Feinstein and she's uh, been under a lot of pressure um, and may, you know, we, we don't think generally the conventional wisdom is that she's not going to run for re-election to the Senate, but whether or not she actually resigns from the Senate um, and allows to allow Gavin Newsom to to appoint a, um, a replacement is certainly a possibility. And so he may find himself in the position of uh, appointing someone to replace uh, Darren Feinstein as well. So he could have, a, you know, really um, long lasting effects on these various offices, uh, you know, as he's able to appoint people to them uh, going forward. And one can only hope that he picks a NorCal person for once. <laughs> you know, just jumping off of that, I will say uh, I do think voters are, are kind of the losers here uh, in a sense that, you know, Padilla has been now been tapped Weber too. They're both going to run uh, in 2022. And I think you're you're back into this cycle of longtime serving California senators and state officials and not really seeing robust challenges that the voters will get to decide at the ballot. I think that would have been the argument for Newsom to pick somebody maybe like Barbara Lee, who would serve more as a caretaker for a couple of years and kind of allow an open field in 2022. Now, maybe Newsom learned from his Ed Lee experience not to take anyone's word that they're simply going to serve a couple of years and, and step down. But I think Melissa makes a great point. Maybe he's thinking, you know, Diane Feinstein might not serve out her full term. There might be an opportunity at some point for voters to fill that seat anyway. Okay, well, speaking of selecting people to hold positions, President-elect President Joe Biden has put forward a slate of cabinet members and other top officials for his new administration. It includes many names who have held high office before, uh, in some cases the same position for which he's nominating them. Other names that have been around for a long time but were behind the scenes, plus some surprises. So let's get into them, and they, of course, include, uh, I don't know, maybe they're all Coral graduates, uh, Carson. Um, but... Such familiar names as Gina McCarthy, John Kerry, uh, Janet Yellen, and such. Uh, just kind of from the macro, Susan Rice, I mean, just from the macro level, uh, Carson, um, what's the sense that comes across about the types of people he's choosing and what positions he's putting them in? What does that tell you about the type of administration that you think Americans could expect from him? What I'm struck by is, um, in a way, how many of the nominations aren't really household names. Like, yes, if you know politics, if you're paying attention to politics, if you're paying attention to DC, um, you, you'll know who these names are, um, or at least recognize them. But you're like, but they're not kind of like these blowout, like, oh yes, of course, that you're really kind of seeing kind of in the, you know, everyone, all the pundits saying like, oh, this person, you know, is on the short list for this, you know, this one. These are, those were household names in a way. Um, and so it very much seems like there's kind of two kind of competing angles here. One is definitely competence. Um, he wants people who can kind of step in um, and kind of manage massive bureaucracies. I mean, like uh, 
being the being the secretary of uh, a U.S. department, uh, U.S. federal department, isn't just only about um, kind of being an expert in that field that they kind of oversee. Yeah, sure, that's beneficial, that's helpful. But at the end of the day, these are administrators. These are people who are managing tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people on a daily basis and massive amounts of money. Um, you're going to have a lot of people below these, the, these secretaries who are the experts in their fields kind of really driving the show. So there's been a lot of criticism about like, you know, why is X person in X agency when they have no um, transportation uh, exper uh, experience, you know, thinking of uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. So I think competence, and not just competence in the policy area, but competence in actually being able to run an organization, um, manage DC, manage the federal kind of uh, maneuvering, but then also loyalty. Um, he wants people who are going to have his back, that he can, you know, that he knows that are going to move forward with his agenda um, and kind of just be, be there to bat for him. Um, and I think those two kind of decision points are, are wise, you know, in a, in a way, particularly in a in a city like DC that is so focused on relationships um, and um, kind of, and furthering those kind of the, the agenda of those relationships. Melissa, what do you think of the picks and were there any surprises? So I think um, that, and again, I'll, as I'll just say this, I always, I agree with everything that person and guy say, so just blanket thing. Um, so, <laughs> but also uh, I think that what's better than having a really kind of crazy, interesting, edgy cabinet is having a Democratic Senate. And I think that his rollout of very safe, very moderate, by safe and moderate, I don't mean um, to characterize their politics. I mean to characterize their personalities as, in, as if to say, I'm not going to do anything weird or fringy with my cabinet, Georgia voters, don't freak out. <laughs> it's not the end of the world that I'm the president and these are the people I'm going to um, put into my cabinet. And it's not just Georgia. There were several elections where there's been, uh, you know, the tale of, uh, of controversies on certain counts and things like that. But I think a large part of what he's doing here is not just appointing people who th he thinks will be competent, which I'm sure he is, but also uh, is sending a message to anyone who's nervous about him being in office and what kind of president he's going to be and how much should they freak out about his election and any issues of voter fraud or, um, or like I said, this Senate election um, is to say, it's cool. These are not um, these are not odd, you know, sort of fringe people that I'm putting in charge of my cabinet. I'm going to pick people who are smart and who, um, who I think can manage these departments. And I think that's part of what he's doing there. And I think it was, you know, if I was advising him, I, that's what I would tell him to do. So I think, I think it's, uh, it, it definitely makes sense that he would, um, that he would roll out a, a slate like this. Uh, Guys, as you were seeing these, this rollout of names and, and positions, anything that jumped out at you? I mean, obviously, everyone, there was always the parlor game that a lot of people were playing. I mean, we have a question from the audience. You know, what happened to Mary Nichols? She seemed to shoe in for EPA administrator. Uh, lots of expectations of who would be Secretary of State, et cetera. Um, what, what is your takeaway from seeing the slate of people he's actually put forward? Well, I think when it comes, you know, the Mary Nichols question specifically, I do think that plays into the larger role of balancing picks that may anger or appease uh, the progressive wing of the party. I think in Mary Nichols' case, it's likely that, you know, environmental justice advocates really made the case that the way that Mary Nichols pursued the environmental agenda in California with the reliance on cap and trade maybe was not the right way to go. And maybe they're hoping for a Biden administration that maybe uh, airs more on the side of government regulation. That's kind of just speculation on my part. I will say I'm fascinated to see how Javier Becerra does uh, in, in his role as Health and Human Services Secretary, if he's confirmed. I'm so glad uh, Carson made that point about, you know, the, the criticism some of these appointments have been getting for their not having the right technical expertise. 
I can assure you Javier Becerra is not going to be the one rubbing alcohol on your arm before you get the coronavirus vaccine, okay? These really what you're looking for in an appointment like this is everything Carson said as far as management, but also someone who can go on the Sunday shows, who knows how to handle both media appearances and also knows Congress. After all, these agencies have uh, to get a budget at the end of the day. And I do think Javier Becerra, when it comes to health care policy, played a role uh, in putting together the Affordable Care Act. But really, that agency is going to be so important uh, in the next year when it comes to the response to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and, you know, also shaping the future health care policy of the Biden administration, that it might not be through massive health care legislation uh, with or without the Georgia results going in favor of the Democrats. You're likely going to have maybe more of a piecemeal uh, tax credit expansion of Obamacare. So maybe then it becomes uh, on Becerra to really use that agency to advance the goals of the Biden administration, focus uh, on the health of communities of color, try to diversify the ranks of doctors uh, in this country, maybe not not through legislation, but really through his role as secretary. So I'm going to have my eye on that. I really thought Melissa's point about uh, kind of a, a message that comes through voters in Georgia, you know, these, these are these are people who are not going to, you know, go crazy on you. Um, there's that messaging. And there's also, I guess, a message that comes through to the folks on the broad left, you know, the, the progressive end and the, the moderate wing, which is, you know, there's no equivalent of the my pillow guy um, on, on any of these positions. Well, speaking of which, let's get to our last topic, and that is other Trump news. There's only so many more days we'll be able to be talking about President Trump's activities. Um, and it has been a very active, uh, what, lame duck time for the president. Um, I want to start with his pardons. He issued a lot of pardons, and he's certainly not the first president to make controversial pardons in his final days. But uh, Melissa, I mean, Paul Manafort, Michael Flynn, George Papadopoulos, Duncan Hunter and his wife, Charles Kushner, Roger Stone, uh, people who were convicted of war crimes. I mean, this has been interesting. Um, do you think... A, say whatever you want about the, the folks who've been pardoned, but also B, do you think that uh, that this could affect the use of the pardon in the future or any restrictions that could be placed on it? I mean, do you think there's anything out of this or is it uh, he can do what he wants? I mean, he's the president. That's why he has that pardon power. Well, so it's in the Constitution. And so if you wanted to put guardrails on it, you'd have to probably amend the Constitution, which isn't out of the question, but um, but it's really difficult to do. Uh, although it may be something that people across political lines can agree to. So if you want to just nerd out with me for a moment, I mean, the reason he has this sort of unfettered, seemingly unfettered pardon power is, um, is because of things like Shea's Rebellion, where you had people who it was necessary to bring back into the fold. You didn't want to just, you know, arrest somebody and alienate all their, um, you know, all their compatriots. You wanted to have the power to say, I'm pardoning, not, not Daniel Shea, but <laughs> the other people that helped him um, and, and bring them back into um, the country. So you wanted to have that ability to sort of deal with, um, you know, separatist or rebellion kind of kind of movements. And that was sort of the origin of the in the U.S. Constitution. There's we could go back to, you know, the old England. But but in the U.S. Constitution, that's what they talked about when they talked about um, why this is necessary to have, because surely uh, there were plenty of people who were concerned about this when it was first being discussed. But that's why the power is there. And it does seem to have gone pretty far afield uh, from uh, from what it was intended to do. And there was a big um, hoo-ha about it back when Gerald Ford pardoned Nixon for any crimes he may have committed, which which was a questionable thing to do. Uh, and so there were a lot of conversations back then about what we should do about it and how we could limit it. But if if Biden doesn't do something similar, it's going to be very easy to mark Trump as an aberration, as someone who abused his power. But the power itself is not a problem. It's really just a matter of, of who's there and, and are they using this um, with you know appropriate discretion. Carson, what are your thoughts on the pardons? And uh... Do you think he's going to try to pardon himself? Well, on that question, I have no clue because every time I try to predict what he's going to do, I get really wrong. So I've just, I've just taken a step back from that entirely. Um, but, you know, I think in, in a way, one of the Trump administration legacies is this deviation from the 
the moral presidency or the moral kind of veneer of the presidency, not to go to good place on, on the program. Um, but, you know, we've relied heavily, I think, in many, many ways through either tradition or law or kind of interpretation of law um, that, you know, the president's going to be a decent, ethical, moral person. And that that's morality, that that sense of ethics is going to restrain them um, in a way that doesn't really require Congress to constantly be changing laws or the Supreme Court constantly to be getting stepping in and, and making decisions. Um, and while there have been you know, instances of obviously of that erosion over you know previous presidencies, um, the last four years has been kind of a constant testing of the fence, you know, is electricity still on, you know, and, and kind of testing portions of where, where the, the, where the weaknesses lie, um, kind of in that sense of what, what ethical moral presidency looks like. Um, the question is, will uh, President Biden kind of bring us back, you know, bring us away from that fence, away from that line? Um, you know, I think yes, but then also what does it mean for the, the president who, who succeeds President Biden and, or the one who succeeds that president and, and so forth. So um, what I kind of, what I worry about and what I think about mostly now is kind of what precedent has been set. And unfortunately, we don't know until the president is used um, in, in the future. Guy, uh, we're currently without a U.S. Attorney General. I think we have an acting Attorney General, um, an intern in the office or something. Um, when Bill Barr resigned rather abruptly last month, not too long after reports that Trump wanted him gone, uh, there were some folks who said, yeah, he's, he's getting out the door before, you know, a flurry of really questionable pardons. Um, do you think this is a, just a last-minute clearing of his wish list, and, or do you think uh, this, these pardons mean more? No, I would I would put it in the former category, but I think combine it with the actions that he's taking to meddle in the election in Georgia, put that together in a in a month where look, this is not a typical transition month. You know, the country is going through an incredible pandemic, the worst stage of it, as if we're struggling uh, to get vaccines out the door and into people's arms. I think it just adds on to the uh, you know the narrative which there's a ton of credence behind that he's not governing. He's using this last month to, you know, get through, you know, as you say, kind of the list, his wish list, rather than deal with all the issues that we have as it relates to the coronavirus. Okay. Briefly, before we go, then, I wanted to touch on a rather extraordinary op-ed that was in the Washington Post the other day. Ten living former secretaries of defense wrote this op-ed or signed on to this op-ed, forcefully declaring the military should not play any role in choosing elected victors. Uh, David Frum said it was a good article, but raises, it raises the question, has Donald Trump been calling generals trying to line up support for a coup? Why was this op-ed written? Um, interestingly, the person who reportedly initiated the process was Dick Cheney. So Melissa, have, have, I don't know if you've had, if you read the op-ed, uh, but uh, you've probably seen people talking about it. Does this, is this a momentous thing or is this another one of those big news for the next 10 minute thing. And then we're on to, um, you know, buying Greenland. Well, it's hard to, to make news out of something that didn't happen. Um, we do know that um, there are reports that there was at least a discussion about declaring martial law and trying to rerun certain elections in different places. Um, and so, it, you know, it, it's not totally surprising that if that was something that was being considered that he or somebody on his behalf was feeling it out with, the generals, the several generals, seeing kind of how this would how this would go. Um, it, there's only a few things you can really know for sure when it comes to world history, and one of them is um, the person who has the guns uh, gets to stay in power. And if you don't have the guns, then you don't get to stay in power. If people elected you out, or for whatever reason, you are supposed to not be in office anymore, and so. It's not so. It's not totally surprising, given some of the you know the reports that we've gotten, saying what they're saying. I mean, there's a reason you know you take a, an oath to the Constitution. You don't take an oath to the president, right? You you protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. That's the thing that you're protecting. You don't protect the White House. They've not sworn an oath to President Trump or you or me or anything but the Constitution. And I think that's an important element of what it is that our military does and 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 how to carson's point earlier this whole process has revealed um, a lot of decency among uh, civil servants and other 
member, you know, people who are in the government or military um, or who, are, who are serving the public who've really had to stand up for their principles um, while uh, it seems like many others aren't. It, it might disturb a lot of Democrats in the future when they have to look back and they say the heroes of the Trump term were uh, Dick Cheney and uh, Brad Raffensperger. Um, Guy, last your thoughts on this? I mean, should people have felt comforted by this or worried, alarmed by this op-ed? I mean, it was certainly chilling. I think it, it might have been in the first paragraph. They said, look, there's only been one uh, unsuccessful transition in the history of this country, and it resulted in more deaths than the rest of our you know, military engagements combined. So I think that you didn't have to read much uh, beyond that. But look, I think it was both a, a signal, perhaps, uh, to those within the administration, but certainly to folks serving in the armed forces that you know, there's a lot more at stake in terms of the, the reputation of the de Defense Department and our military not to get involved with anything like like this. Uh, in addition, I think the op-ed outlines really the severe punishment of anybody who, you know, might want to take that into their own hands for whatever reason. And Carson, I'll give you the last uh, response. What are your thoughts on this op-ed? It, it, it's difficult to say. You know, I, I do know that there were quite a few amongst kind of the, the Trump supporters talk about kind of you know, Trump pulling a uh, Julius Caesar and quote unquote crossing the Rubicon and, um, you know, with very kind of clear undertones of kind of using the military. Um, of course, the big challenge there would be the fact that un unlike Julius Caesar, who had the support of big parts of the military, um, there's really no evidence that uh, Trump really had is well liked, uh, nor that did the did military members actually vote for uh, Trump in, in large numbers. Uh, actually, the evidence is quite to the contrary. Uh, so, you know, even if he was trying, would it actually have worked? Uh, potentially not. But there's a lot of what ifs. I think a lot of um, opportunities for um, writers, uh, investigative journalists and whatnot to, to write a lot of uh, uh, telltale books um, in, in the months and years ahead about what kind of, you could probably write a book in just one week of the last two months, um, let alone um, the last you know, four years. And so um, it, it will be, uh, I think, a fascinating kind of unfolding of what um, this means in American history, global history, but also um, kind of how it impacts uh, what Biden is able to do and, and what happens in Washington, D.C. Well, thank you all. Uh, we had someone, someone in our audience online who says, I want chocolate. Um, I believe there are three exclamation points after it. We, too, will one day have chocolate and we'll have wine, a social hour. You'll get to talk to our panelists live at the Commonwealth Club. But for now, we're so glad you joined us, watching us online, giving us questions, and, of course, um, just taking your time to be informed about things. So thanks to our great panel today, Guy Marzarati, Melissa Kane, and Carson Bruno. Thanks to all of you listening and watching online. Stay safe and healthy and have a good week. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.